0: I tried a lot of stuff, hit a lot of dead ends, made plenty of mistakes, learned from those. Some were, you know, luckily some were small mistakes, big lessons. Sometimes they were big mistakes, same size lessons. But at least I learned lessons and I never want to pass up the lesson from a good failure, right? All I was looking for was passive income. I wanted enough cash flow coming in that it covered my, my necessities and that it covered my lifestyle and it covered anything beyond that. So how you ask how did it happen? You know, a lot of it was by chance. You run into somebody, you do a deal, turns out to be a good deal. You run into somebody, do a deal, turns into a lesson instead, right? Mm-hmm.
1: All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we have on the show Tom Burns joining us from Austin, Texas. Welcome, Tom. Hey,
0: thanks, Pascal. Glad to be
1: here. Likewise. Happy to have you. So uh, I'm going to give a quick bio on Tom. So uh, Tom and I know each other through a men's mastermind group called GoBundance. He's sixty-four. Uh, like I said, he lives in Austin, Texas, and he's married with two kids. Uh, they're they're adults now, doctors and firemen. Uh, but he's a principal at a private equity, a real estate firm in Austin. He's a physician for the U.S. Ski Team. He's an author of a best-selling book called "Why Doctors Don't Get Rich," uh, and he runs a mastermind to teach people how to invest and run. Private funds. Uh, He began investing in private investments uh, in 1995 uh, and has invested over a million dollars in over 10 deals as an LP, but primarily um, he's raised over 250 million. Uh, as a general partner for over 50 different deals. Uh, So private placements make up over 80% of his uh, investments, including multifamily, medical offices, hospitality, manufacturing, student housing, mobile home parks, private equity, uh, retail, real estate, oil and gas, venture capital. He's done it all. He's got the gamut. So I'm excited to have have him on the show today and and share everything he knows. Uh, Tom, how did you get involved with the US ski team?
0: Oh, so yeah, like everything, there's all these thin threads in life, right? So, <clears throat> you know, I was, a, I was a doctor, right? Uh, I, actually I was an athlete when I was young, found out nobody was going to pay me for it. So I figured how do I keep hanging around athletes? So I became an orthopedic surgeon and a sports medicine guy. The guy I trained with was a gentleman named Richard Stedman, super famous orthopedic guy. We trained in Vail, Colorado, and he's the guy that kind of set up the ski team medicine. So that's where I hooked up with the ski team. 1991, I was the physician for the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid. And actually, you know, I was young and still reasonably athletic. So I jumped. These these are the ones that jump. So I jumped with them, you know, jumping up, doing the flips and stuff uh, into the pool. So I trained with them. And so I've been I've been covering the freestyle ski team for the last 30 years. You know, the guys that jump up in the air and do flips and land and look like they're going to kill themselves and the ones that come down the moguls. So it's been a blast. It's been a good way to see the world, and it's a great bunch of kids.
1: I love that. I love that. Uh, you're right back in my my home hood uh, of Vale. That's uh, one of my favorite places to ski, so I love that. <laughs> um. So uh, you eventually uh, then, you know, you've built this whole career uh, as a, a general partner, and you've also invested in other deals. What was the story? What's the trajectory of how you got started?
0: I knew nothing but sports and chasing girls, and at least I was moderately successful in sports, right? Uh, so that's that's all I knew. And uh, you know, when I pretty much realized nobody was going to pay me for that, that I went into med school, and so and they don't. They don't train you. There's no business training in med school, right? We're specialists and good entrepreneurs are generalists. So I go through the spec. I go through med school training. Then <clears throat> for those that don't know, after med school, you do what's called a residency. So that was five years plus a sixth year of sports medicine. I was in the middle of my residency and we're trained in an apprenticeship program. You think back, blacksmiths, plumbers, carpenters, you know, apprenticeship, right? So we do this five-year apprenticeship. So the people that are teaching me are, by extension, that's me in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? So I watched these guys, and they made a lot of money as physicians, but they weren't happy. Uh, they were on their second or third marriage. They were in the hospital at 11, 12 o'clock at night when guys like me had to be there. I'm wondering why these guys had to be there. They were complaining about their lifestyle. And this happened enough times that I eventually realized that I didn't want their money if I had to have their life. That's not what I signed up for. I always intended to just enjoy life and have fun. So I thought I gotta be, I gotta find a way to make some sort of income that's not correlated with medicine. I didn't know what that was. Cause again, I'd had, you know, zero, uh, business classes. I didn't know anything. So I didn't have the money or the time to do stock trading. I couldn't start a business. I thought I was going to go into administration, but I found out that I was completely unemployable. But it looks cool when you wear scrubs you think well carrying a briefcase and wearing a suit's cool right well that was a job uh so i ended up landing on real estate and as you know real estate's simple it's just math you know you buy something and you let somebody use it and they pay you enough money to use it that there's a little bit left over in the end and you get to keep the leftovers that's that's real estate so i started learning about it uh still didn't have two nickels to rub together but at least i had time i was able to learn and I learned what I could. And as soon as I got out and, you know, paid off a few bills, paid my parents for the groceries that they helped me buy. Cause I was busted when I hit Austin. Uh, don't feel sorry for me. I had a doctor's income, right? As soon as I had, uh, as soon as I had the time, I just jumped. I just, I figured that's what you do. I just bought something and didn't know my head from, from anything else. I didn't know what I was doing. I just started buying.
1: Got it. Okay. So you, you started investing and one of the first things you did was like maybe buy a single family home and, and start renting that out. Was was that the same for you?
0: Close. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I bought, you know, I, I, uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. I, uh, I bought, and so had some relative coming down to go to Texas. I thought, ah, a tenant. So I bought a student property. I looked, literally looked in in the newspaper and for the, the millennials listening, that's a, that's a sheet of paper that's got print on it that has ads and things like that. Uh, that's all we had back then. And on the back was a little real estate section and there was apartments and condos. I found a deal, had a name on it. I called that. I said, I'd like to look at this. By then, I knew the math, right? It was simple. I could, you know, you could figure out if it was going to make you some money, right? So I call this guy. We meet down at this single student condominium. Uh, he shows me the deal. Looks like it's going to work. The math that I did was seemed positive. So I said, yeah, well, let's let's buy this. He said, great. I said, how do we do that? He goes, I'll put in a contract. Okay. So he puts in the contract. We win the deal. He says, great. You got the deal. I said, awesome. What do I do next? He goes, well, you got to get an inspection. You got to get insurance. You got to get a loan unless you're paying cash. Of course, I wasn't paying cash. I said, that's awesome. What do I do? (laughs) Right. Pattern here. He goes, I'll, you know, I got to an inspector and I went and called some banker friend and said, look, I'm buying something I'm supposed to get money from you. So what do I do? He says, well, give me a personal financial statement. Last two years of taxes I got mad at the guy because he kept asking for information. So I knew nothing, Pascal. I knew nothing. So I'm I'm fighting through this thing, and we finally, you know, we get it bought right. And that made me about hundred to hundred fifty dollars a month in passive cash flow. That's the drug I was searching for. I thought this is pretty cool. I didn't have to see a patient. I didn't have to do anything. It came in. I couldn't stop it. it came in every month. So I called the guy up. I said, "This is awesome. You got you got any more?" He goes, "Sure. I got one down the street." So we go down the street, look at another one. Math works out again. This time I knew a little more. It took me less time, but I still learned a bunch of lessons. We bought that one. Now I had two. I said, you got any more? He goes, sure. Well, I bought, I bought another, bought another, bought another, bought another. Pretty soon I got so good at that market that I could tell you in five minutes if it was a good deal. Uh, I got so good. I bought. I bought one side unseen that I still own today. I bought one for no money down. I wasn't planning on no money down, and would never recommend that. But I knew more than the selling broker and the seller himself. It appraised for much higher than I bought it for, and they actually wrote me a check, you know, at the closing table. So that knowledge, you know, I, I got good. I knew nothing. I understood that asset class. So that started things. I had that portfolio of these things. I bought some other stuff. I bought some really ugly piece of property that had a cell tower on it. Cell tower covered everything. People started finding out that. I knew how to close deals i knew how to find deals and so people were bringing me deals people were coming and saying will you be a partner with me and so we started buying multiples and you know things just escalated from there it's just it's the same math there's just more zeros on it now and so you know i I ran across partners i will tell you one thing pascal uh and stop me if i'm talking too much no i love this. this is great so that was that's all i knew you know back then i don't want to say like it, you know, it was great depression or something, but back then, you know, there wasn't, I, I didn't get it. I didn't barely
1: had a computer at this time, you know, what are we talking uh, like 1990 or we're, we're talking, we're talking
0: mid nineties, we're talking 95, 95, 96, 97. So, you know, I had a computer, you type DOS commands into it. Uh, and so we didn't have access too much to other people's deals. Right. So I thought that's what you did. If you were in real estate, you bought your own stuff. So I reached a point where I had a nice little portfolio of these little dink things, and they were making some reasonable money. I had a friend who was a uh, had a friend who was a developer, and uh, you know we'd vacation The guy said, "Look, I really like what you do. Will you teach me?" He laughed at me, looked at me, and said, well, "You're a rich doctor. You don't need to know this stuff." I said, "That's all right. Just teach me anyway." So I worked for him for a year and a half, for free. Not only for free, I was canceling offices in the afternoon so I could go. You know, learn. We were doing build-to-suits for banks. We were looking at land. We were doing stuff like that. So it was costing me because I was canceling revenue-producing office hours. But I knew that's where my future lie was was in, in creating my own streams of income rather than counting on seeing more and more patients so i I learned a lot from him, and out of that came something you and I talked about came you know we ended up putting together an office project, and so we built a hundred and fifty thousand square foot medical office complex that we still own today, just the two of us. so I learned from him a great asset came out of it um, later on, I was speaking on stage for somebody in uh, Arizona in two thousand and one, and the guy said, "Yeah, and Tom's from Austin, Texas at the break, somebody comes up and says, "We're moving to Austin. will you be?" you know, kind of be our contact because we don't know anybody in Austin. I said, sure. Well, I got to know that person over the next four or five years and that's my current partner in Presario Ventures. So there's really small threads that connect people over time. And I think I've done, whatever I've done, I've primarily done by having partners that are smarter than me and using the team concept rather than what, you know, what intellect I might have. We just all kind of try to do our jobs.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. So to recap, you... You, as a thirty-something doctor, you started making, you know, the real money that doctors make, and you started paying everyone back, and slowly starting to buy pieces of real estate here and there, and then, uh, you know, build up a portfolio. Met, you know, you were hanging out with one of your friends who happened to be a developer, and then he was teaching you how to really invest in, I'd say, commercial real estate and then that's where you know you that was probably your first deal that you did together with that mentor of yours is that what i what i understood wow okay and so then then you know walk walk me through you were then uh this you, you were this guy's contact and awesome you guys became business partners and and then at some point you decided Hey, this doctor thing isn't for me. Uh, I, I want, you know, like when do you make the transition? Were you 35? Were you, you know, did you already have a bunch of passive income? Like walk us through that and and why, why? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a
0: good question. I'll surprise the why is pretty easy. I, you know, my wife and I had a deal. We're going to go through life. Whatever it throws at us, we're going to have fun. And part of my fun is travel. And you can't travel when you're sitting in an office seeing patients, right? I want to see the world. And so I'd like to put a pin in every country in the world. We'll see how close we get, right? Uh, what are you at? Uh, I don't know. Again, I haven't counted the numbers. You know, I'm just, I'm just not left brain enough to want to do that. But I'm going to do that one day. But been to a lot of them. weird ones, you know, Belarus and Kazakhstan and weirds, you know, weird Afghanistan, places like that. Um, so, so, yeah, you'll see me in a lot of weird places. But... Um, uh, <laughs> Okay, so yes yeah, so you're asking so i look i was a, I was an athlete and I'm in sports medicine I was having a good time I loved medicine and you know you can really love what you do particularly when you start gaining a little control over it so I was never trying to leave medicine all I did was once the once I got enough pass i just wanted i didn't want to be beholden to seeing somebody right you know I wanted to have my own streams of income to you know take that from uh, Robert Allen's, so, you know extra streams of income right uh, I just want to control. I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. To put it that I mean, Maybe I'm just narcissistic. I just don't want anybody telling me what to do. And so that's what that was doing. So I just slowly, you know, I, the first thing I did, Pascal was, you know, I was a young doctor in town. So working all the time, working weekends, doing all that stuff, burning the candle at both ends, because I'm doing the real estate stuff as well, while doing full-time doctor work. There finally came a time when I thought, I got a little income, wasn't life-changing income, but it made me feel good enough that I cut out Friday afternoon office. And, you know, when you work all and when you work all the time, it it doesn't, you take off Friday afternoon. I was like King Tut, man. I had a two and a half day weekend. I was awesome. I didn't have to work Fridays and that was a good feeling. And that's all I did was I just kept, I just kept changing the scales. You know, then I cut off Tuesday afternoon and Thursday. And so as things progressed, to answer your question, I loved medicine. And I loved it even more because I eliminated all the annoying crap that you have to go through most of it. And I didn't have to be beholden to any hospital or any patient or any insurance company. I didn't like what they did. I'd fire them. So I, so medicine was fun. I only stopped two years ago because not because I wanted to get out of medicine because I just ran out of time. There was, there was more to do. And so I only stopped two years ago, but I probably practiced medicine for. I think it was about thirteen years when I didn't need the money. So I eclipsed the income of an orthopedic surgeon eventually and uh, and that just kept growing. So I know it's a little different story. I wasn't trying to exit now. I could I can't imagine going back, but it was a hard decision to actually stop practicing medicine.
1: Give me the storyline of how you transitioned from okay, you, you bought all the student housing and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you told me that you've invested in all of these different asset classes you know retail medical office you know uh how did, how does that come about and are they all your own deals or those deals that you're investing in
0: there, yeah it's a good question well i think i'm the poster child for attention deficit right i and i and we've all got fears but you know i'm just dumb enough i'll just jump into a deal to go learn you know i mean i do the due diligence got a lot better due diligence by the way but um so i mean i i a partner that same partner we bought a restaurant and I always suggest to people don't, right? <laughs> you know, so I owned a restaurant, owned that for ten years. Uh owned a ranch in Africa for ten years. Uh so all these were my deals. It was just me investing. If we needed money, I'd go get investors. That's how that happened. I eventually kind of ran out of money for the deals I was doing, and I just started grab the old deal, started grabbing friends, family, and acquaintances, and things just grew over time. And uh and so it, it so I tried a lot of stuff. Hit a lot of dead ends, made plenty of mistakes, learned from those. Some were, you know, luckily some were small mistakes, big lessons. Sometimes they were big mistakes, same size lessons, but at least, at least I learned the lessons and I never want to pass up a, a, a good failure to, I never want to pass up the lesson from a good failure. Right. So, uh, that's, you know, the guy's the guy that, the guy that wins, the guy that wins is the guy that's failed the most probably. So that it was just, there was no grand plan. I had no, no great, I had no net worth number. I never even knew what my net worth was until the bankers asked for it, you know, for loans. My whole, all I was looking for was passive income. I wanted enough cash flow coming in that it covered my, my necessities and then it covered my lifestyle and then it covered anything beyond that. So how you ask, how did it happen? You know, a lot of it was by chance. You run into somebody, you do a deal, turns out to be a good deal. You run into somebody, do a deal turns into a lesson instead, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Got it. So, you know, one of the things I talk about often on this show is this concept of excelling at the thing that provides you your cash. You're focusing on your cash cow and then placing your money with other experts. And Mm -hmm. I think, uh, The one exception to that rule is if you are trying to develop the skill and do it lifelong after that, Um, which it sounds like is the route that you took. Does that sound like it matches you?
0: Yeah, I kind of actually took both routes. And I totally agree with that philosophy. If you're really good at being a doctor, lawyer, architect, engineer, business owner, man, you, you know how to produce the income and create that discretionary income and try to find the right people to grow that. Uh, And I did do that. But I think growing up in the real estate, growing up in the investment world by buying my own stuff, I think I had this sort of accelerated learning curve. And so my focus really, rather than focusing on seeing as many patients as possible, was always focused on doing the best we could for our investors. That was my job. That was the thing that we wanted to focus on. And we've done that for 20 years now. And that that tends to grow the number of investors and, and perpetuates that the need to continue to be better at what you're doing.
1: One of the, you know, you you said that you focus a lot on cash flow, uh, and I imagine in the beginning that's that's all you focused on. Has that objective changed over time? I mean, I I, I saw that you have invested in some. Uh, very non cash flowing assets like venture capital. So so how Absolutely. how does that fit into your portfolio? How has that changed over time since you started investing at 30, you know?
0: Yeah, it's it's and you know it's kind of that philosophy of uh you know if you, if you look if you need, you know, if you need a big bucket of money that that bucket looks like Mount Everest, right? You know, so it's hard to take that down one bite at a time. I always enjoyed the cash flow thing uh because, you know, Depending on how much you know, I could I could create enough cash flow for the year. I could go back to my I could go back to my QuickBooks and say, you know what, I covered my utilities for the year. I'm not a rich guy, but you know what, my utilities are covered. Now my mortgage is covered. You know, so I used that uh, kind of continuous reward thing to realize I'm getting closer and closer and closer to where I don't have to worry where the money's coming from. Once that finished, and yeah, you know, the money kept you know kept growing. Then I started thinking more about you know, doing some things. Actually, it took me a while. Which people say, "What would you change?" Maybe I might have done. I wouldn't change anything because I love where I am. But you know, at least strategy-wise, I might have done a a little more, a little more speculative stuff early on. Uh, and so that's why it's changed now. I've got the cash flow. I'm not the most wealthy guy in the world, but I don't have to work. And so sometimes you take, you know, certain pieces of your. Of your income or your net worth or whatever cash you have to invest. And you know, man, I, I'll tell you, I've been the general so many times. It's really nice just to be one of the soldiers and just hand the money and let somebody else do what they do. So that's why I'm in certain VC funds, technology funds. I'm not a tech guy. Uh, I let them do what they do and they're going to, you know, some are going to be successes, some not, but I think that's a nice hybrid. I think, I think it's certainly easier to conceptualize getting the cash flow to get you to a point where you've got more time which means you don't have to really replace your income. Just take some pressure off. It's nice. And it makes you smile more, right? A little less pressure, you smile more. That's what I tell people. Just do a little bit because you get that taste. You get that addiction. You want another hit, right?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so that's what that's how you get addicted.
0: Exactly. I wanted more and more. So I like to get people these quick wins and, and show them what it's like to have income that comes in, whether they're sleeping, cooking dinner, playing with their kids, vacationing or working. It's really nice. Um, but yeah, I think I think a hybrid it, it takes more time to realize, but you know, if you've got some you've got some of your funds you can put into something that, you know, has a chance to do 10, 20 or 100x, realizing you may you may make that, you might lose that. You just put a certain portion to it. Uh when they do hit, it really does accelerate the trajectory and gives you more money to invest in cash flow and some extra money to invest in some more speculative projects. So I am doing more of that now.
1: What what are we talking? Are we talking like five X your money? Are we talk like, you know, compared to the cash flow deals, you're kinda of making a comparison here, right? That that investing in equity growth deals um grow your wealth much faster in the absence of cash flow. But like w- give us it in real terms. What does that look like? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So in, in at least in my portfolio, you know, not needy. I don't need a hundred X and too stupid to figure out what's gonna be a hundred X. So, you know, I'm in some funds that are that are uh, that are, you know, projected 5x. And then there's a few that maybe 10, maybe 10. I don't think I'm in, I don't know if I'm in anything. That's 20x. That's really getting, you know, so I say VC, but more later stage, you know, VC rounds. Uh, but you know, so I, I, I don't do a whole lot of early stage VC. We're getting there though. I'm getting there. And a lot of the folks I hang around do that. So that's coming, but I'm not there yet. So yeah, I would say, I would say short to midterm VC stuff five, ten X, you know, I'll graduate to twenty and hundred X one day, but that's also gonna create more that's gonna create more failures because you're looking at those kind of numbers, you gotta know that the majority of them are not going to make it and one might.
1: So right, yeah. The basis of venture capital is eighty percent of the portfolio is probably going to fail and you just hope the the, the couple winners you have uh, outdo the whole portfolio. What is it, it You know, you mentioned that it's nice to sometimes sit back and be an LP and let your money work for you instead of you being in charge of all of it. Um, The amount that you've invested as an LP is, like, I would probably call insignificant in comparison to the amount of money you know i think i think how much did you say you've uh, invested 1 million you know as an lp but you've raised you know two hundred fifty million plus as a gp like why at that point like if you are you know of already doing everything on your own why are why are you playing around in the lp space
0: ah you know it's 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 the people it is like a million to 2 million like you and i talked i don't haven't i have to go add it up i'm sure i'm lying to your audience i have no idea what the real number is uh but it's, it's people. So, you know, first couple of deals were doctor deals, you know, you got that MD after your name, you kind of get access to really sweet deals. <clears throat> you know, you put in 50,000, you start getting 20,000 a month in cash flow. That's a pretty fair deal. Um, those are unicorns, right? So I did a couple of those.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to find out what those are.
0: Ah, <clears throat> uh, it's just, you know, not, not open to the general public. And, you know, it depended on my activities as well. I was an LP, but I brought business there. It's, Stuff that's not not available. So I did that, but you know, the first kind of non-medical one I did with a friend, and so so I'm friends with a (laughs) friends with a guy named Kiyosaki. Everybody knows Kiyosaki, right? He wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I brought Robert to Austin way back in 1997, and I had him give a talk. And a friend of mine was in there who was an attorney for a large retail. He did all the real estate work for a large large national retailer, right? He comes to that meeting. He quits his lawyer job, goes into real estate, and does his first fund or his first project, right? So, of course, I invested with him just to support, right? Uh, so I invest with the people I knew. I knew his due diligence process and all that. And I knew if it went bad, it was because the market. You know, you don't want it to go bad because because the person either doesn't know what they're, they does not know what they're doing or has you know uh, has has bad ethics for lack of a better word. So I invested with him. So I invest with generally with people. I have found the few times that I invested in just a great deal and didn't spend as much time on the people. Um, I've lost a lot. I've lost, you know, I've lost or, uh, was able to get out that sort of thing. So it's usually with, I usually invest with the people, uh, knowing that they've got good character and then as well married to the fact that they, Know, they know how to run the deal. So there aren't a ton of those. There's others out there. I And I put most of my, you know, I put my money in my deals, you know, so I'm investing as an LP in a bunch of my deals, but we have, I have lots of them, you know, so maybe that's why.
1: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, something that I'm also interested in is you've mentioned that you've, you've invested across this entire gamut of asset classes and, You know, what I'm trying to better understand is, did you just, you know, you thought these assets were interesting. And so you went after them, like not having any experience in them before, or you found a partner who was really good at it and you partnered up and, you know, then you went into mobile home parks or office, you know, like if you know single family, but then you jump into office retail and private equity, those are totally different boats and require different, you know, Different due diligence, understanding different market dynamics. Walk me through that.
0: So, I think I think that you know that attention deficit came in again. So I, I would try anything. So yes, yeah, so usually, and most of these were with my money. So, the student housing, mobile homes, uh, uh, cell phone towers, things like that. And I put my own money, of course, into the uh, into the medical office. So I was getting a lot of experience. So number one, that helped me in the future. I didn't realize I was gathering experience for to find out. Either what I wanted to do in the future or what I wanted to stay away from, you know, when I'm being restaurants, right? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, and then the others when, when, if I invested, if I invested as an LP, it was generally to either support, like I said, that was pure support for a friend, but I learned about the, you know, it was retail centers. I learned a little bit about retail. It was kind of nice. Great, great reports from my friend. Uh, so sometimes I'll invest to learn. Uh, assuming there's going to be a reasonable return. Uh, uh, So it was, it's a combination of learning and uh, producing profit. You know, Uh, I've invested, you know, there's a tech tech fund that I'm invested in helping, you know, actually helping to run and raise money. And I've learned a lot about the tech world. Uh, You still don't want me running a tech fund, but uh, I'm learning, you know, I'm learning. So it's, 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 it's it's selfish, I guess, you know, I want the money and I want the education. So I'd like to get them both at the same time.
1: Yeah. So when you're in, when you are taking on capital from investors, uh, you know, through your own, uh, venture uh, through your own firm, what are you primarily investing in? Or is it, is that across the gamut?
0: No, mostly it's, it's real estate. It's mostly in the multi-tenant world, multi-family bill to rent, uh, you know, extended stay housing. That's our that's the main, that's our main business. That's what we've done since, you know, 2009, right? So we have investors been with us for, and then my partner and I had investors prior to us. We have investors been with us almost 20 years. So we kind of pretty much do the same thing. Uh, if it's outside of that, it will be either with somebody that's really, really good at what they do and has a track record. <clears throat> or, well, it's going to be that. It's going to be somebody that's really good with what they do and has a track record. Because I do, I'll sometimes do... I've got value add portfolio where we, we, we purchase existing properties in the Southeast. You know, I've got the technology portfolio. So I know the people. Uh, and I certainly value add, we've you know, done plenty of purchasing a value add. So that's, that's right in the wheelhouse. Uh, the technology I ended up learning, but uh knew the people. So, uh, yeah, I, I forget. I don't know if I got to the end of your question. I've kind of lost track.
1: No, no, I, I, th- I think you, you nailed it. So, how does? I mean, one of the things we talk about here on the show is: look, you you should be investing with someone who eats their bread and butter day in day out. They focus on whatever asset that they're they're focused on, um, and you know if you don't have that expertise, how do you how do you go about determining? what a good operator or a good deal is. If you know, you know, I'm thinking you mentioned something about private equity. You know, if if you're a big real estate guy and you started in the real estate world, you know, how do you go about evaluating private equity funds or oil and gas funds to know if, if they're sound? You bet. Uh,
0: and it's, you know, it's, I think a lot of times it boils down to what we're doing right here. So hopefully there'll be some nuggets of wisdom here from you or me, probably not from me, but, you know, listening, getting educated in your network, you know, your education and your network is your hedge against failure. You're still going to have some failures, uh, but that's that's really important, you know. And so so if 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 something interests you, number one, go learn about it, do what you can. Um, There's only so far you can get, you know, with academic stuff, you know, you get you learn a lot more by doing so, and then tap the people in your network. You know, as you mentioned, we're in GoBundance. There's a lot of networks out there. A lot of them are free. Some of them are paid. They're all investments. They're all worth it because you can start, you can start tapping the, you can start leveraging the experience and the networks and the resources of other people. And you can learn about these things. Now, that's one thing. So, you you know, maybe you tell me about a deal that's, that sounds good and you and I know each other really well and. And you've invested with them before. They got a nice track record. I'll, I'll tend, if I go into something like that, I'll tend to go in small because again, you know, if I lose it, I lose small. If, but the size of the lesson is the same, right? So you you learn best by doing. And you know, you've heard the story. You can do paper trading all day and you're a millionaire. And as soon as you put your own dollars down there and you start trading stocks or something, it, it goes to hell, right? So you learn the most when you got your money on the line. So I tell people, invest small, take the big lessons. You'll find out if it's for you or not. And then, you know, move on. You're going to, you're going to kiss some frogs. Eventually you'll find a sponsor or an asset class that really fits you well. And then you can start diving in even more, you know, maybe eventually start doing it on your own and bringing other investors in, but use, use the people around you. And, and it's not foolproof. I can promise you it's not foolproof because I did that and I got burned, you know, um, but it's it's better than going in blind because, as a friend of mine says, uh the prettier the brochure, the crappier the deal. So you would like, you know, these days you would like somebody that's got some gray hair or no hair, somebody that's been through the GFC. Nice to have somebody that knows how fast things turn when things go bad because... You know, GFC, know
1: great financial crisis.
0: Yes, sir. Nice to have somebody that's got some experience and track records. If you, you know, and... I, you know, all candidly, you know, there's there's deals out there that were that were set up in the last few years by folks that might have taken a seminar and might have never seen bad times and assume that real estate always goes up or something else always goes up. But life is waves, man. There's up times and there's downtimes. And so it's nice to have somebody that's weathered the downtimes. Or can give you a plan for if things go bad. If you tell them, you know, what if things don't go as planned? Well, we've got this, 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 and this contingency, and that's why we—that's why we think it's going to work. You know, we've done—we've done sensitivity tables. We can, you know, we can withstand sixty percent occupancy if it's a real estate deal. That sort of thing. That's somebody that's thinking and knows at least how to look out into the future. Nobody can predict it, but you want somebody that's thinking about it.
1: So you mentioned, you know, a key question that you might ask uh, during a due diligence you know, interview, you know, what are the contingencies? How how do you deal with things when they go sideways? Are there other, you know, key questions that, you know, are always part of your due diligence process that you think about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, how many exit strategies do you have? That's kind of similar. You know, do you, are you, are you counting on a sale or are you counting on rents to always go up or something like that? You know, what are your strategies? if Things don't go as as planned. Um, Of course, You know, have you got any deals go bad? You know, they, you know, rarely does anybody have every deal go well. So you'd like to know what the deal was and what they did to get out of it. Maybe what they learned from it. You know, what's their communication style? Uh, I tell everybody that's, that's running deals that, you know, you don't communicate with your investors. They, after 24 hours, they're irritated. After 48 hours, they're really mad. After 72 hours, they start hallucinating bad stuff about you. So how do they communicate? Right. Uh, and who's on the team, you know, what's the experience on the team? Because uh, that's that's huge. You know, what have they gone through? Who does what? That sort of thing. Uh, who are their previous investors? How have they done on the previous, you know, oh, let me talk to some investors. So there's a lot more, but kind of broad stuff, how they handle adversity, how they communicate, what their experience and track record is.
1: Yeah. And then I imagine you just, Wait to see if they squirm or how how confident they are in their answers, or if they just left. They're putting on a show, or if they're just telling you straight. I imagine those are all easy things to pick
0: up. Yeah, out. You, you know, you tell me, tell me you anything wrong. Oh God, uh, let me tell you about this deal. You know, we blew it. We picked the wrong partner, or we had this thing, but we got out of it. Life was okay, or you know, that just makes you feel better. They quickly will give you an answer, and it and. You know, and it's it's nice that they're putting their especially if they're if they're new people. You want them, you know, you want them to have the old quote, "skin in the game." But I'll tell you, so you know, when you do a lot of deals that are, you know, 75000000 dollars, you know, sometimes it's hard to put all, lots of money into every deal. You know, so you know, you want to know if they're if they're new at it, that it means a lot to them. And if they've done fifty deals, it's not at, as important that they're putting skin in the game. Uh, it's always nice to have it, but it's not always possible.
1: Uh, that's a key note that I just picked up on. Yeah. So, I mean, something we talk about is if you're working with an emerging manager, that there's a lot at stake for them. There's so much on the line. They might not have as much experience, but they might have a lot more of their own money in the deal, or they know that if this deal doesn't go well, that the likelihood of them being able to continue along this career path is very low. Um, and if you work with more experienced managers, there might be less money in each of them, um, you know, from the, the general partner because the deals are just so much bigger. Uh, but they have a, a better track record. But there's also kind of this maybe this thought that, you know, if they're doing so many deals and they've gotten so big that, uh, you know, their latest deal it, it doesn't matter as much if that deal goes sideways. How do you, what's your take on that kind of opinion?
0: That's, that's true. And that's, that's there, you know, and that's where it kind of comes down to talking to, you know, uh, some of that character and, you know, we can't ever totally assess character. Right. But, you know, track records do help the past, the past does teach us. Uh, And so, uh, you know, when you kind of look at the, you want to look at the parameters, you know, if the, uh, particularly, if, and usually most sponsors, they're putting in some money or they're bringing it from, or maybe they're, you know, maybe they're even raising their, their sponsor co-invest. Um But you, you kind of want to look at the waterfall and and still see, you know, well, okay, these guys are, maybe they've done 30 deals before this, but they're not putting much money in. And, you know, the, the split starts right away. You want to make sure the, you want to see that the investors are taken care of first, because, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, if the investor gets their preferred return and their capital back before there's a meaningful split with the sponsor, that means something because that sponsor's putting, you know, they're 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 committing economic and time resources to this deal, so they do have a lot of skin in the game. And it costs to do this stuff; it costs, you know, they're paying employees and things like that. So that would make you feel better. But what you know, watch the splits, and yeah, you know, I've seen everything. I'm sure you have. I've seen, I've seen, you know. 95 to the to the limited partners and 5 to the GP and I've seen 95 to the GP and 5 to the limiteds and mostly everything in between right so you want to see what those what those splits are what the waterfall is and who gets paid first and it should always be the investors get paid first in my mind
1: you you know something I I like to uh, let me actually ask this question first cuz I think it'll dovetail when you you mentioned that private investments uh, make up over 80% of your portfolio and that you're not invested in stocks. You're not invested in bonds. Uh, Why?
0: Okay. Uh, You know, control. Um, uh, You know, I, I don't uh, the counterparty risk and the stocks, you know, I think stocks are, I I'm not a big fan of paper. I'm a hard asset guy. I like real assets. And so, Everything I'm invested in is backed by a real asset. Uh, it's absolutely no control in the stock market. And if, when you're running your deals, you got, you know, certain amount of control, certainly can't control everything. So I am, uh, it, you know, I, I did, I did, I was a good little boy. I did what I was told when I came out of med school, right? Start a, start a retirement plan and you invest you dollar cost average into the stock market. So I learned all this stuff, you know. Guy had me, guy had me buy what's called zero coupon bonds for my kids college. That was the worst thing in the world. I'm sure his commission was great. Um, those weren't worth squat when I got rid of them, but so I did all that, but I started watching. I watched my portfolio, you know, 2001 up and down, got hammered. You know, I invested with the, the star money manager of that year who had just crushed it the year before. Big surprise. Our portfolio got cut in half. Um, So I got out right before the great financial crisis. That was my only good stock call. And then of course I watched it go from 7,000 to 33. So I'm not saying it's bad for everybody. It's just, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, Tom Burns does not like stocks. I've done better by putting it in, you know, real estate and hard assets. I like stuff I can touch. And so no ETFs, no REITs, none of that. Everything I have is, everything's backed by some kind of bricks and mortar or computers or something.
1: Yeah. And something, uh, I think about is that you can, uh, oftentimes I feel like I get better returns investing in private assets than I would, um, generally in like the S and P 500, you know, um, you've, you've had some, uh, some scars, uh, from, you know, you you've raised a bunch of money, you've done a ton of deals, you've, you've been down the path. Uh, and one of the things I like to highlight is, you know, it's not always sunshine and rainbows. Walk us through how some of your deals have gone sideways. Why? What happened? Like, let's let's go into the details so that so that someone who's about to invest and is maybe thinking about investing in, in one of these deals can, you know, I don't want to scare anyone, but I, I think it is important to just understand how how things can go sideways.
0: Right. And there's, and you know, and there's risk in everything. Certainly there's risk in the stock market we talked about, but there's risk in anything. And you read that private placement memorandum and it's going to have 20 pages of how you can lose your money. That's all done on purpose. But, um, yeah, in most of mine, most of mine came down to people. And this is sort of a mix of, you know, my deals and, and our deals with my partner. You know, I've, I've been, in, I've invested with one guy who, Somehow managed to stripe the parking lot and replace air conditioners every quarter in one single office building, you know, which was the reason why he wasn't putting out distributions. That was a small, easy one. Uh, I invested with one guy. Basically, it was a bridge loan for a guy <clears throat> that was doing this project up in Colorado. And by then, I'd learned to do my due diligence. So I called a friend of mine uh, who was you know, a big time friend. He said, oh, this guy is salt of the earth, a great God-fearing man. You know, you couldn't do better than that. He's in jail. Uh, he, you know, literally wrote me a check in crayon one time, and so, but you know, <laughs> but I was the only guy. I was the only guy that got paid money because I I structured in quarterly payments. But yes, we lost some money there. Uh, uh, one time, connected with a young fella who was twenty five years old, graduate of an honors business program, and then find out later he was nineteen and got thrown out for cheating. Uh, we took that project over. Um, uh, I've had, I've had, uh, let me see. One guy's gone to jail. Uh, uh, one's been raided by the FBI. Two of them ended their own lives. Uh, one's been indicted by a grand jury and, you know, another one's been like sued by the SEC. So all people, uh, one of our projects, uh, I picked a out of town project. I picked the contractor slash brokers our connection in in this out of town place because you need somebody with boots on the ground. Deal was fabulous. Deal was great. Uh, it turned out to be uh, turned out to be a bit of a con man. Cost us a bunch of money. Uh, so that was our that was our worst deal at Presario, my company. Uh, but what we did, Pascal's. I haven't had a, I had a young, uh, one of my directors was young and she said, well, let's just, you know, let's kind of fix it first. Let's not tell the investors, you know, they don't need to know it. will just bother them. I said, no, we tell them. I said, not only do we tell them I called them and I didn't say we picked the wrong guy. Cause guess who picked this guy? It was me. I called every investor and said, look, I picked the wrong guy. He's a con man. He a crook. I said, we're going to do what we can to get it fixed. Every single investor, but one said, huh. Ah, Stuff happens, you know, I know you'll do okay. Because we had these investors for a while. One guy said, okay, it's my first deal with you. I'm going to watch and see how you guys do. Well, it ended up creating a nine and a half percent annualized return for the investors, which were at the time was our worst deal ever. And so that guy's still investing with us. But so it's a lot of people. Um uh, You know, this pandemic, uh this pandemic caused a lot of stretching out of, um supply chains, time frames and we build apartments, right? So, you know, you're expecting a 14-month build and all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, 26 months. Uh, you start amortizing your loan sooner than expected, your costs go up and so that has that has uh, that has kept us busy and given us something to do over the last year, I'll put it that way. So, but you know that stuff happens. Uh, you can't control pandemics. You just have to react in the most appropriate manner. It's all based on trying to trying to get your investors the best return possible because you take care of them. You don't take care of them. You don't have a business. You take care of them. You've got ongoing business.
1: Yeah. One of the things we, uh, I've seen kind of this divide amongst general partners, ones that believe, Hey, you know, the investors, they invest in this deal. It's, you know, it's either goes sideways and that's kind of the reality of it. Uh, and then there are others that, uh you know we'll take money out of their own pocket and try to make the investors whole how do you sit where do you sit on that uh, spectrum
0: well when we can we sit well we haven't had many of those yet although we we potentially have one coming up and that's what we've done so we've taken our own money which is again (laughs) sometimes we can't put as much into the next project but yeah we we tend to loan the project our money or once we even took money from another project Brought it in personally, put it back out to the partnership that uh, had some issues and made sure that the investors got taken care of. So, look, we, you know, because this doesn't happen often. Uh, we are granted, we're not Mother Teresa, but we are not here that we don't put those deals together so we can make money. We put those deals together so we can give investors a good return and a good yield. And by extension, we will make money if we succeed. And I can promise you, we've been in. Closed door meetings where we look and see the investors, you know, we're not going to do that deal because they don't do well enough. Or first we look to see how the investors are going to do. Then we back it up and see, you know, is it going to be worth our time? Are we as general partners going to make any money? And, you know, One of the deals I vividly remember it was a typical 80-20 split. And we just weren't happy with the invest projected investor return. So we cut it to an 85-15. We took 5% less on our general partner side. So again, we're, you know, we truly do think about the, you got to think about the, you know, if you got somebody that thinks about the investors when the door's closed, then you're in pretty good shape. I'd still not going to keep you from having problems in the future. You know, the, the market's going to going to throw you some curveballs, but I believe that, uh, I believe that you take, take care of them. They'll be in good shape. Mm-hmm. And you're right though. The, the other side of the story is they invested. You told them this is, you know, here's all the risks. You could lose your money. We're going to do our best. Uh, and if they lose money, of course, we lose more, so individually, you know and collectively, no, but individually, we lose way more than any individual investor typically does so um that's a part of it too these these that's why they're accredited investors, or that's why the 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 material that we put out lists the risks, and we talk to people you know nothing's guaranteed it's always projected because my crystal ball remains fuzzy. I cannot predict the future
1: so how does you know uh, if I'm looking at a deal and I'm trying to evaluate uh, a general partner or sponsor, uh, you know, uh, the, the picture I'm getting is that, you know, you, you, have to ask some basic questions. How do you, how do you do uh, when things go awry? Tell me about bad deals. Uh, but there's some like, you know, sauce in there, secret sauce of how, 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 how what advice would you give me or the audience of, uh, when you're evaluating a sponsor like that, right? Like,
0: You know, talk to your friends, Pasco. you know, talk to your buddies. Don't just, you know, I'm serious. And I got, I run a mastermind and say, hey, I got this great deal. It's like, well, I know those guys, good deal. Or I know those guys. Why don't you look for another deal, right? Use your network. <laughs> so that's, that's the, that's the main thing. If you are out there blind, if not blindly, but if you're out there by yourself and you see a cool deal, you you don't want to take, you know, I tell my but don't take my word for, don't take my word for it as how cool we are. Go talk to somebody else. You know, uh, you need to find a third party person or some sort of third party information that doesn't have a dog in the hunt that will say, yeah, those guys, they, they work hard. They do well. They, you know, they've done well in the past. Uh, they're good people. Uh, that's. I mean, as you know, what I gave you all—I gave you all the things that went bad for me. What did it? Most of it boiled down to was people, wasn't it? Uh, so, one, you want to make sure there's some there's some ethics in there, and then number two, close number two is you know they know what they're doing. So, you could be the greatest guy in the world if you're just if you're doing your first apartment complex. I want to make sure you got some partners that have done them in the past, you know, or else you're going to give me half the project if I'm putting money in it
1: give key le- What are, what are uh, some key lessons? You know, you've been investing for 30 plus years now. Uh, how is, how is your mentality and mindset shifted over that period of time? What's, what have you graduated to?
0: Yeah, I tend, I tend, I tend to invest only with people that I've known for a while. So I'll tip it. If I see a deal, I'll maybe watch them. So it's, it's, because now I don't have to invest in a lot of deals. So it's going to be somebody that I've known for a while uh, or that somebody I know has known for a while. Um, my due diligence continues to get better. I won't say it's the best, but it's... Uh, well, hopefully it's good enough. But, you know, continue. due diligence is really boring. It's really boring to ask those questions and you feel like you're sometimes being overbearing. But if somebody gets irritated... There's a reason for that you know so the due diligence has gotten better you you do want to see numbers you want to follow the money trail and know where everything's going so my due diligence has gotten better uh my willingness to invest you know with somebody has to do with either knowing them for a long time or knowing somebody that's been close with them for a long time thus i don't do it a lot but if i bring something to my group it's somebody i've you know been investing with for five or 10 years or known for that long so there's just enough deals out there you don't because it you might miss fear of missing out is real so you see this great presentation and it's going to be a jillion percent return and uh you know if you don't have somebody corroborating what you're hearing then you know maybe you might look for another deal
1: yeah i mean something i've thought about is is um I haven't done this myself, but kind of just top of mind is taking that deal that you have and bringing it to another operator and asking them to poke holes in it. What do you think about great. that idea?
0: That's a great yeah. idea. That's that's what masterminds are about. That's sort of your that's a little two man mastermind, right? You're you're bringing it to somebody that knows what's going on. Uh, you know, we just did that the other day. Somebody brought a deal. I knew the sponsors, good sponsors. You know, that helps that investor feel good.
1: Has your has your investing changed with economic cycles
0: yeah yep how has that Uh, changed you know i've gotten a, a little a little more aware of you know harboring some dry powder it's kind of where i am now uh trying to harbor as much as i can somehow the the war chest seems to keep emptying but i'm trying to create a war chest but uh yeah, there are times you know you want to stay in the market. You want to keep looking at deals. You know, I had a buddy of mine who owns ten thousand units. He said they they underwrote fourteen deals last week, made offers on two, got none. That's what they do. Ten thousand units. He's got a huge company of three hundred people. So, yeah, stay in the market because you'll if you're in the market quickly, you'll see when there's a change or you'll quickly recognize what's a good deal. So, uh, so I'm trying to hold some hold some powder for that. Or that dry powder is either going to be used for opportunity or for problems that I don't foresee. Problems that, you know, I, I didn't realize were going to come. You know, in 2001, I didn't know what was going to happen. In 2008, I thought, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen. I still missed stuff. So as we go into what should be some sort of recession coming up, at least that's what the, you know, the yield curve tells us. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what I'm going to miss this time. I'm trying to be, so I'm trying to be set up so that if things go wrong, I've got some money to cover it. Or if uh, opportunity shows up, I've got some money to cover it and can act fast.
1: So you're not concerned about, you know, missing the the bottom or having, you know, just too much cash on the sidelines sitting idle. No. Well, like, how do you it. know when it's too, like, when you should be, you know, it could be this for the next three years and then it goes up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm in a little different situation, but you know, it's right, but I try to hold my cash in something that at least keeps up with inflation. You know, I, I hold it in some debt funds and things like that, that make pretty reasonable return. Uh, and you know what? If I don't keep up with inflation, but I don't invest in a dumb deal, then I, then I'm, I come out net positive. So, and I'm pretty sure, Pascal, that I will invest in a dumb deal again. You know, I'm going to do my best, but that's human nature.
1: Do you do you think oh energy you know I see this big energy crisis coming or it's happening and so I want to invest in oil and gas or I want to you know I think you know interest rates are going to go crazy and affordability is going to be really low so I'm going to invest in mobile home parks do you think in terms of asset classes that way
0: not not much you know I keep an eye on the macroeconomics and Particularly if it affects, like I do have, I do have a natural gas investments. And so I look at that, you know, I look at the war in Ukraine. I look at the warm, wet, the warm winter that they had in Europe. And I look at where the gas prices are now. And I like where we are because I don't think they're going to go down. They either stay where they are or they go up. We're profitable where we are. So I look at that kind of stuff. Uh, interest rates. Of course, we, you know, we watch those all the time. Can't predict them or do anything about them, but we plan for them. So uh, I watch that. Uh, and we, you know, we kind of have our opinions, but, you you know, there is that trap. I saw a deal the other day. It was planning. They were counting on and planning on a a precipitous drop in interest rates over the next 24 months. Might happen, but what if it doesn't? So you try to underwrite, you know, if you're underwriting a five-year deal, we, we underwrite it at today's interest rates. And if we get anything and if it works, awesome. It works if it doesn't then you know you're hoping you know you're hoping on somebody to buy that property from you or you're hoping on those interest rates to go up so hope my friend calls it hopium right you don't want to you don't want that to be part of your business plan
1: when you're uh, you know now what are you are you focused on multifamily just moving forward do you what kind of deals are you looking at right now given given this environment
0: yeah. So, and like I mentioned, uh, it was, it was a year ago, January that we hacked the pipeline, which is one of our, one of the best moves ever. We could see interest rates were getting ready to do their thing. Um, what do you mean hacked the pipeline? We had a big, robust pipeline of deals that we could have you know, raised money for and, and proceeded with. We decided to sh- shut them down. We kept the best of the, what we thought was the best of the best. And so far it's looking okay. We, we might have been, might have been in trouble if we'd have, if we'd have gone that big. That year just didn't seem like the right time, Uh and so and those those were in apartments. And and so right now, apartment development's taken a bit of a pause. There's been a lot of overbuilding, but you know, overbuilding in a town like Austin, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna overdeliver shortly, but it won't take too long for that absorption to take up what's there. And then if you start building, then there's a big gap. So that typical development out, you know, overdevelopment, and then there's a need. So we're, you know, we're six million housing units down over the next 10 years or so. We're like four point something million apartment units. So apartments are still, they still, they look good long term. They look very good. Right now there's still rent growth. It's just much lower, much decreased from what it was. The interest rates are keeping the home buyers from first time home buyers from buying homes. So the what, you know, where interest rates are right now and inflation, that's working for the rental world. Works for apartments. So yeah, so we're, I mean, we're in, it takes us a long time to do a development. So we've got a number of parcels of land. They're in various stages of entitlement. We're ready to pull the trigger when we think it's right. So we still are, we are going to be, we are a multifamily firm and that's what we're going to do going forward. It's going to be development and acquisition, just depending on what we find acquisition wise. Branch, you know, sort of in that, on that same road, but maybe on the shoulder, we've got built to rent, which is sort of horizontal apartment complexes they run relatively the same we've got a couple of those projects and we're in the we're in the extended stay world which is one it's sort of a hybrid between hospitality and workforce housing apartments you know this those particular products are used by people that are working it's not discretionary income it's not people vacationing most of the time it's people that are you know, spending three to six months in a place to do a project. In my doctor world, we have travelers that spend three to six months working in operating rooms, traveling nurses, traveling techs, traveling doctors. So uh, the metrics on that are good. Uh, The big money's put billions into it. And it's, uh, you know, so that's, that's something we've been working on for two years. So still in the multi-tenant world. So that's what we're doing now.
1: Tom Burns, dropping knowledge. Tom, yeah. th- this was awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, it was really fun. Thank you. I'm sure I rambled too much. No, I was. that's where all the gold was. So I appreciate that. So um, thank you again for hopping on the show. You bet, buddy. Thank you. Take
0: care.